Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Rust, your host for this week, with our first podcast from London. I cover the UK and Europe for Samsung Next Ventures, and I'm an advocate for female founders and those leveraging technology to solve big, real-world problems. Women make up about half of the world's population and drive the global economy. They control the vast majority of consumer spending. But despite this financial power, few companies design and market products and services specifically for them and their unique needs. An emerging female technology market is attempting to address this imbalance, focused on improving women's lives and well-being and giving them agency over their bodies and futures. Femtech, as it's called, is predicted to be a $50 billion industry by 2025. My guest today is leading the charge. Tanya Bowler is CEO and co-founder of LV, a London-based health and lifestyle brand developing smarter technology for women. Welcome to What's Next, Tanya. Thank you, Christina, and great to be doing the first podcast from London. Yes, so exciting. First from Europe. Well, we're really excited to have you on today. Um, Women's health is clearly a passion for you. You have a a PhD in HIV and teenage pregnancy in South Africa, and you launched the UN's curriculum on sexual education. Congratulations. Amazing accomplishments. And so how was the idea for LV Born? Was that from a particular experience that you had or something personal to you? I thought of myself as quite an expert in women's health. As you said, I have a PhD in sexual reproductive health. I'd been working for 10 years in this area. And yet it's when I went through the personal experience of becoming pregnant and becoming a mother that I realized there's so many changes that happen to our bodies as women that nobody talks about. And there's not even much research, let alone any kind of technology or innovation to help women. Yeah, it's amazing when you look at the statistics around research and sort of investment and the fact that, you know, when when new drugs are trialed, for example, even women's drugs, like women's Viagra was, you know, tried on you know something like 23 men and two women. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of fascinating that this that this industry has been, particularly health, has been built up that way. Um, and is that just sort of a historic norm? Yeah, less than 4% of all health research goes on women's health issues. I'd say it's to do with cultural norms, but obviously it varies by country by country, but also it is improving over time. So if you think about it, 30 or 40 years ago, anything to do with the breast, even breast cancer was a very taboo subject. Obviously, breast cancer is still um, a very difficult disease, but at least it's more out in the open and we're able to talk about it. So I'd say the real sort of taboo or the the, the difficulties of discussing womanhood are now more below the belt. It's anything to do with any gynecological illness uh, or disease, um, and particularly the, the area which we focused on for our first product, which is pelvic floor health. So, you know, pelvic floor is a part of a woman's body. Everybody has it. It's a key uh, part of our body that's important for it's a postural muscle. It's important for health, sex uh, benefits, and also for, for giving birth. And yet most of us never even think about it until we have a baby. Yeah, I was surprised to, to learn that uh, pelvic floor problems affect one in three women. It is kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. Um, so the more I researched it and you know, realized that there's, there was some technology out there, but most of it had not been shown to be effective. And the only thing shown to be effective was real-time biofeedback. So basically, a woman has to go to a hospital, lie on a bed, put her legs up, and they insert this rather painful medical device with some electrodes, and then they hook you up to a, a monitor. And then as a woman exercised the pelvic floor, she could see in real time how she was doing. And then you could use an ultrasound to tell the woman if she was exercising correctly. So, you know, my initial idea was why can't we take all this horrible medical equipment and turn it into something that women actually like to use. So the way we went around designing the product was obviously talking to a lot of women, but also talking to a lot of health professionals to find out why are women not exercising, like even if they have the education and they know they're supposed to do it. Um, and, and the main things we came up with was that 
women lacked confidence. They didn't know if they were doing it right or not. Um, and they also lacked sort of motivation. It was difficult to do and they just gave up. So for us, it was about taking that kind of biofeedback device existed in the hospitals, which also relied on quite out of date technology. So electromyography and taking innovation more what was happening in sports tech. So using sensors like a triaxial accelerometer in which we'd be able to show in real time the motion of the pelvic floor and miniaturizing it all into basically what is now LV trainer. So it's a very small uh, pod. It looks quite organic. It's a sort of simple uh, pod shape which you insert. There's Bluetooth in the tail and it connects through to the app. But obviously inside the pod are multiple sensors that are able to detect uh, not only if the woman is exercising correctly, but also how, how strong her pelvic floor contraction is. So as she squeezes the pod on the screen, you can see a gem lift in in time to that contraction. It seems very simple, but actually there's a lot of complexity behind because obviously women are very different in terms of their pelvic floor strength. So what we do is we create personalized programs for the women with personalized targets. And then it's literally as simple as insert the product and you do three five-minute workouts a week. And women are seeing improvements in as little as two weeks. And it ended up, you know, selling incredibly well, both both through your website and through retailers, and and as well as influencers, you know, like Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow talking about how amazing this product was. Was were you surprised that there was such a strong market yeah. reaction when we developed the product? So my background was in women's health. I didn't know much about tech, and I didn't know much about branding. But I was very fortunate that my second angel investor was Alexandra Saley, and he started Jawbone. Jawbone was a pioneer in wearable technology. At its peak, it was a $3 billion company. And along with Fitbone, really trailblazed in terms of what wearable tech is today. So he came on board and um, actually became my co-founder. But it was very much with his help that he made me think through this whole paradigm shift that we need to bring about, which is also what he managed to achieve with Jawbone. You know, and he just kept saying to me, just focus on the product offering, make sure it solves a real problem. Just focus on that and the rest will sort of will, will follow. So uh, that's very much what we did. We got the product out there. But we were surprised, yeah, by how quickly women fell in love with the product, but also started sharing about it very organically. Um, and I think that's just because there's just been such a need for such a long time. And you also have a, a partnership with the uh, the UK National Health Service here, the NHS, which provides the LV trainer on a prescription to certain patients. I was just curious, how difficult was it to land that deal? Did that sort of come after all of the the sort of public success that you that you have enjoyed, or was that something that you worked on from the beginning and you know took many years to actually come to fruition? I think for all of us sort of working in the connected health space, you know, we sort of have a, a bit of an identity crisis at times in terms of, you know, do we go more the traditional medical device route where we know that there is already a market within existing health systems, or do we go more for the consumer side, especially as we're going more into personalized health? For us, it was very much about you know, that we IP and we regulate like a medical device, but we definitely wanted to build our marketing strategy and our brand around women uh, and their own personal use of our products. So in answer to your question, actually, the NHS wasn't really part of the strategy. Our assumption had been that to get into a health system like in the UK would take years. And um, so therefore, we just focused on our consumers and making sure that we we were giving them a solution to their problems. But as part of that, what we also knew, particularly for this issue, is that there's not much education. So women don't even know what their pelvic floor is. They don't know they need to exercise it. They don't even know that technology can help them. And they don't know until something's gone wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so then what we did, I was, you know, what we did is we kind of plotted out who are the important influencers around uh, women having this conversation and particularly new mothers. 
and kind of obviously the health professionals is such a key part of that. So we went out and recruited over a thousand health professionals to help them sort of start changing the conversation. But through that, they loved LV Trainer so much because they saw that what we had produced was better than what existed in the clinical setting. So in fact, the the adoption of the NHS happened much faster than, than we were expecting. And I think sometimes if you have an innovation within a health system and it really is superior to what exists, it you know, magic can happen in that sense. Yeah. And how do you think about incorporating user feedback over time? How important has has getting feedback from your users directly and your customers, incorporating that into the product and then iterating? It's absolutely critical. I mean, both our products, LV Trainer and also LV Pump, is almost like we started with a blank piece of paper and designed it all around women's needs. Um, For the first product, what we also found is because there's not much research into women's health, there's not even much research into certain parts of the female anatomy. So there are only about four peer-reviewed journal articles around the vaginal anatomy, which is wow. completely crazy because 50% <laughs> of the population have this this anatomy. Um, so we had to use a lot of research in order to, to, to inform every aspect of the design. Also, we were designing the products based around consumer frustrations. So women were telling us, particularly with the first product, that they didn't like using medical devices because they were uncomfortable to use. So it was all about how to make it easy to use, how to make it fun, and to also, there's an important part around personalization, because ultimately you're asking people to change their behavior and exercise. And yet with any other type of physical exercise, you would, for example, if you're training for a marathon, you would say to somebody, you'd you'd let them know what their targets are, you'd let them know how fast they're running, and how much they're improving. Whereas with this part of women's health, women are just told to keep exercising, they've got no idea how they're doing. And your your second product is the LV Breast Pump, which has gotten a wonderful uh, coverage here in the UK and recently launched in the US, which uh, I understand actually sold out in the US within a couple of like minutes or hours from being launched. Is that right? Yeah, we keep selling out since we launched in the US. That's amazing. Why do you think we need a better breast pump? That's something that's you know obviously been around for a very long time as a as a um, as a device. But what's the technology innovation there? Yeah. So, well, after we'd launched our first product, um, you know, that was very much, to be honest, a, a passion project in the sense that I saw a really neglected health need that, that needed technological innovation to to help solve it. But whilst I went on that journey, I just realized that basically all consumer electronics designed for women are just dreadful when you compare them to to products designed for men. And there's many reasons for that. Uh, but really, when you look at what tech product epitomizes everything that's bad designed for women, it's the breast pump. You know, it's an essential product for new mums. And yet it's it's just, I don't know if you're familiar with the architecture of a, a normal breast pump, but it's it is, it's, it's from the dark ages. It's, it's this horrible architecture. You've got this huge motor. It's very noisy. It makes this like, uh, 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 noise. You plug it into the wall. It's unbelievably it's, heavy. It's it comes heavy. in a huge bag that you have to tote around with you. Yeah. And it's also women are you, again, it's a very sensitive time of life for women. And maybe that's also why tech companies haven't really innovated in this area because it's things people don't talk about. But, you know, you've just had a baby and you're tired probably and you're having to use this, this product that is, you know, a lot of women tell us they feel quite dehumanized. It has it creates so many negative emotions for women. So really for us, it fit with everything that we're trying to do at LV, which is all about changing the way women interact with technology, but also making smarter technology for women and to help build confidence and control. What we've managed to do with the breast pump Again, it's start with a completely blank piece of paper. Like, what would the dream breast pump look like if you just ignored what currently exists? And what if it could just be so small and silent that you just put it in your bra, you let go, and it does it for you. You can control it through the app. So that was the kind of 
big blue sky thinking we came up with. And, and that's what we've produced. It's the world's first ever silent wearable breast pump. And, um. Cordless as well. There. Yes, completely. Yep. And women are literally just using it in so many different ways. It is, it is giving them so much freedom. We have doctors who are literally operating in theaters whilst they're pumping. We have women running marathons. Um, it's just women are just using it to kind of basically be the mother they want to be and be the woman they want to be, which has always been our aim. That's amazing. And are there any stories that you've heard about this particular product that you know, you've gotten from customers or users that were particularly <laughs> exciting or interesting or surprising? Breast pumps is a really neglected category, but it's a huge opportunity. The feeding category in itself is 30 billion. Breast pumps is 2 billion. And there's really just been two incumbents who've dominated what is a very condensed market for, for decades. So for us, when we launched this product, similar to the first one, it wasn't just about the new tech. We wanted to, to create a new conversation and change the way people even think about how they interact with this technology. So it was all about thinking, you know, what can you do with LB pump that you wouldn't be able to do with a traditional pump? And it's all about giving women that freedom. So we actually launched at London Fashion Week in September um, with a model who's a new mum, Valeria Garcia, and she literally walked down the catwalk whilst pumping. She had the pumps hidden in her uh, suit and then at the very end revealed that she'd been pumping. Amazing. And it was an incredible story and it, we got incredible press around it, but also just opening up conversations around, you know, breaking stereotypes about what working mothers should and shouldn't be doing. No, absolutely. And that's an important conversation to have that, you know, frequently, frequently is probably had amongst women, but not often in a broader context. And so I think that's really important. So at LV, one of our key mottos is love being a woman. And we believe you can use technology to embrace and love womanhood. And that there's aspects of womanhood that we neglect or won't discuss or are ashamed about. So for both our products, they're areas that we don't talk about. They're kind of in the shadows. Pelvic floor health is associated with lots of yucky health issues like bladder problems and prolapse. Breast pumping is, again, something that women are just ashamed about doing and makes them feel bad about it. So for everything that we do at LV, it's about changing the technology from, again, a neglected medical device space into something really cool and fun so that users actually want to interact with your technology. And second, also changing the whole conversation from a kind of negative one to one about being strong, smart, empowered. Those are very much our brand messages. And it allows them to just change even their whole awareness of who they are as women. Is alignment with other brands that embrace similar values important to you? Is that something that you think about sort of strategically as a company from a marketing perspective? Absolutely. I mean, when we launched our first product, there were so many naysayers. People were just saying, this is way too difficult to talk about. You're never going to get into retail. You're never going to get celebrities to talk about this. But we've managed to obviously prove everybody wrong. Uh, even in the U.S. recently, we were just launching in 300 CVS pharmacies wow. with the first product, the second product going out to over 500 retailers, including Target. So we've managed to get big retail presence for, for what has been often a kind of more neglected issues around women's health. The success that we've had, I'd say, over the last couple of years has obviously been bolstered by the fact that there's so many other players in generally in the kind of feminist movement that's going on. So that there is right now is the time there's different styles that are aligning. You know, we're in the midst of a huge feminist surge. There's a real underbearing womanhood going on. So the whole conversation is shifting. So that obviously LV is very much at the front of that and part of that along with, with other companies that are, that are doing that too. We've also seen other tech startups working on different specific parts of women's life. So when we started, obviously, here in the UK, we're focusing very much on the postnatal period to begin with. But you see in the US, uh, 
great entrepreneurs like Kate Ryder with Maven, who've also been focusing on on the sort of pregnancy new mum part of the journey. And then in Europe, we've got companies like Clue and Natural Cycles focusing more on the fertility space. So we're all focusing on either different stages of womanhood and also different product offerings. So some of them are services such as Maven versus an app in Europe or for us more the connected devices. But because we're all kind of giving the same message, it's creating obviously a lot more interest and excitement. I mean, five years ago, the word femtech didn't exist. Um, investors could quite easily just overlook you and, and just, you know, as we had at the beginning, make comments like this is niche. But I think now there's enough noise, there's enough success, there's enough experience out there. There's more and more female investors as well who understand more that this is a, a real uh, issue for consumers. So we're, we're beginning to see a kind of a really exciting snowballing in terms of the interest and the momentum. And you, you've raised money here in the UK from funds like Octopus Ventures and others. And I was curious, to your point on feedback where you might get that it was a niche market or something that investors didn't understand initially, as you were raising money, the the additional challenge is that it's a hardware product. It's, yes. you know, it's hardware and software, which yep. is notoriously difficult <laughs> to do. And I was just curious, did you feel like you got more pushback on the hardware piece or on the market that you were going after? Yeah, I'd say if anything, actually, there's sort of three potential disadvantages. I mean, as as you've talked about in some of your earlier podcasts as well, some of the biases, unconscious or conscious, around female entrepreneurs. Second, around the whole hardware aspect, and then third, obviously, it's an intimate tech. I think with the, the intimate nature of our products, some investors at the beginning didn't quite get it and didn't believe that this was a real issue for for consumers. But that's actually quite easy to tackle with investors because ultimately they do understand the numbers and the evidence, and and just pointing out the the, the size of the market and the statistics could kind of bring bring them around. So I think actually hardware still is often the most challenging things when it comes to raising particularly VC money. You know, I think um, when Alex, my co-founder, started Jawbone 20, more than 20 years ago, it was really hard to get VC funding for consumer electronics. So that was very much, I'd say, the first wave. And then about five years ago, we saw the second sort of wave in terms of the hardware revolution, where there's a huge amount of excitement at the potential of connected devices, 3D printing and cheap manufacturing in China. Um, but we've seen obviously a bit of disappointment within that space and um, startups not quite fulfilling their potential. But I'd say, I mean, obviously I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm optimistic, <laughs> but you know, we're very much at the beginning of a third wave in terms of hardware. So yes, there's still, I'd say, a lot of caution from VCs, but there's recognition that with connected devices, if you can, if you can really focus on a pain point for consumer and you can really solve their needs, then there's a really exciting potential there. Going into the hardware business and knowing the challenges that existed, were there certain advisors or individuals that you felt that you needed to have on your team in addition to Alexander to to beef up that experience and and sort of cover your bases around those concerns? Yeah, I think, well, Christine, I think you've um, kind of you to think that I would have known the challenges in advance. <laughs> I definitely did not know the challenges in advance. I, think, I mean, actually, funny if Alex, my co-founder, often says that one of the the endearing features of an entrepreneur is their total naivety. Um, <laughs> About the thing that they're, they're yeah, attempting definitely. to do. Yeah. yeah, If you knew how difficult it was going to be, you might not do it. I mean, sure. our first product, even for a hardware product, it being intimate needs to be fully waterproofed. I mean, even Jorian had waterproofing problems. So, no, I was naive, yeah, in terms of the challenges. But Alex... It's been an incredible co-founder, as in you know, anybody who's out there thinking about setting up a business, you need to have a lot of complementarity on your co-founding team. So having him on board and having him really help me in terms of shortcuts was was really critical. I think the key thing that he brought, though, right from the start, which is maybe more of an American attitude to uh, startups and than here in Europe, is to obviously raise more money earlier mm -hmm. and to really focus on bringing the best talent in. So even though we had hardly started 
Um, we raised a bit more money, brought in a headhunter, and really hired some top talent in terms of engineers. Sure. How would you define the culture at LV that you're trying to build in terms of the kinds of people that you want to be there and the way that you, you run the office day to day? Yeah, our brand values are strong, smart, and empowering. And um, we are a very mission-driven company. Everybody who comes in there has a real sense of purpose and really wants to sort of do something big in the world. Um, we are predominantly female company, which I think is quite unusual for a tech startup. That is quite unique. And also very diverse. You know, we we, we have people from, from every continent in the world, and, and that's very exciting too. Is that something that you did consciously? I mean, I think when you're a very early stage startup, it's it's can be difficult to really push for diversity because often you might not have the budgets <laughs> to to go out and find the talent mm-hmm. from outside your kind of more your network. Now it's become more strategic, especially, you know, we have three home markets, UK, US and China. So we need to have, you know, North Americans on the team who understand the US market and and we'll be doing the same for China too. I think China is a fascinating third market to be going after. And I was curious, are there particular demographics or megatrends that are mm-hmm. attracting you to that market for these kinds of products? Yeah. So, well, so particularly the breast pump market, which is, to be honest, the, the bigger market than, than for pelvic floor health. For pelvic floor health, we, we are creating the market. So we'll get there. The potential is huge. But for the breast pump market, the two key markets are the U.S. and China. So 50% of global revenue for breast pumps is in the U.S. And that's partly because it's covered under the Affordable Care Act. So that's the number one. Um, and also we're, we're targeting first-time mothers who in the U.S. are 26-year-olds, so it's a young and important demographic. But China is equally uh, important. Partly, obviously, the actual population size is much larger, um, but also particularly demographically for, for new mothers. They do tend to uh, spend time at home after giving birth, and there's already kind of an understanding of the importance of postnatal care. And also just as a premium brand, you know, the, the burgeoning middle class in China is a really exciting opportunity. And, you know, we're following brands like Dyson and Apple who are, who are you know, making a lot more effort in China um, with great, great commercial success. The exciting thing about China as well is the way that they do social buying. So particularly for our first product where there is an element of education. You know, in China, the e-commerce sites are in, in some ways more developed than here. You know, here obviously everybody looks at reviews and ratings – we're on one site, one e-commerce set in China, which is now a sort of one of our key accounts. Um, and it works really well for the first product because basically all your social network will be reviewing the products, loading up their user-generated content, video reviews, and particularly LV Trainer, where it really comes to life when you see it. So that, that also even just that purchasing behavior in China really suits LV. So clearly, diversity is a challenge in tech, in the technology industry. I think everyone recognizes that, and there's a fair bit of awareness around it right now. But it's not something that it seems that LV necessarily struggles with. So I'd be curious if you have advice for founders or C-suite executives who sort of look out on their company and recognize that they have a, a problem around diversity and want to do something about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of getting more women into tech, I agree there's a real shortage. I would, I mean, I would, I'm always a bit of a contrarian, but I think there are some great women in tech. If anything, they're just very in demand. So often you might need to be competing with the likes of Samsung and, and offering higher packages. Um, but in terms of how to, to look out for that diversity or particularly for women in tech, um, I think often what we've done at LV, which has worked quite well is, to, to draw from a pool of women who maybe haven't got a background in tech, but as long as we think that they've got the aptitude to be learning tech, we'll bring them in. So you have to be a bit more open-minded in terms of your selection criteria. I'd also say, second, you also just have to widen your 
candidate pool. You know, if if a list of candidates come in and they're not diverse enough, then I will tell the headhunter we need a, a di- more diverse set of candidates. Obviously, ultimately, you're going to choose who's the best candidate, but you have to make extra efforts, obviously, to get that diverse pool in. And third, what we do, particularly in areas such as engineering, where they're just is such a shortage of female engineers is it will bring in young women and we'll sort of train them up in-house to fulfill those roles because that's, I think, you know, one of the important ways to, to keep growing that pipeline. Sure, yeah, both the pipeline and yep. making sure that your funnel is big enough. Mm-hmm. And how have you have you put together your advisor network or sort of your support system? Because I, I imagine that's particularly important given, given that you're by yourself here in the UK as the CEO and, and co-founder. When you think about, you know, sort of the the kind of support that, that you need to when you need a piece of advice or something's going wrong and you need someone to talk to. Yeah, in terms of networks of support, we have a really supportive board, which has a lot of experience. So I definitely think choosing your board members carefully, bringing on people who have been there and done that before is, is really, really critical. And then I also have a sort of network of more female entrepreneurs, particularly actually female entrepreneurs who are also parents, because I think that's a uh, brings its own challenges. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's just really important to sort of share with your peers some of the, you know, the challenges that you're facing naturally as, as an entrepreneur and also as a parent. What are other areas of tech outside of your own, so the health and wellness space, that you're excited about or bullish on? I think there's a huge opportunity to just completely turn all traditional health technology on its head, be it from the design of medical devices, be it to how we market them and we sell them. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Obviously, I'm fundamentally a, a huge proponent of connected health with, the, you know, the big dream being a world where you have multiple connected devices and sort of one digital platform that can be your kind of go-to destination for personalized health information. Um, I think obviously for women's health, it is, is, this is the most exciting opportunity. But you can obviously see if you look at different life stages, particularly for the elderly and also for children, I think uh, those two dependent stages are kind of really easy entry points, I think, for connected health. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on What's Next today. It was wonderful chatting with you. Congratulations on all your success. I cannot wait to see what comes next. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every other week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by the all-woman team, Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers. <laughs>